everything is in motion at once. Everything affects each other and everything is in motion at once. Every choice that we make is part of this moving, living fabric. Perhaps there is a perspective from which you could say you could see the whole thing at once. But our job as humans, I think, is to create that fabric so that it makes sense, you know, to create sense and to create purpose and to create meaning uh, from our own limited perspective. Welcome to the Documental Podcast, in co-production with News from the Insold Universe. I'm your host and producer, Whitney McKnight in Missoula, Montana, and I'm joined this time around by T. Susan Chang, a.k.a. Susie. Although Susie's voice might be familiar to many in this audience as a food commentator, because she's also a cookbook reviewer at NPR, we will primarily be discussing Susie's expertise in archetypal mythology. Her latest book is The Living Tarot, Connecting the Cards to Everyday Life for Better Readings. But I will also mention that Susie is the author of several other books, including Tarot Correspondences, Ancient Secrets for Everyday Readers, and this one is my desk reference extraordinaire, 36 Secrets, a Decanic <laughs> Arcana of the Tarot. I love that book. Love that book. Oh, I'm so glad. That one's very, very special to me. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Well, we can talk about that one too. But also um, you you have a, um, uh, you, you also co-authored a book with Mel Moline, another Tarot reader. That book is Tarot Deciphered, Decoding Esoteric Symbolism in Modern Tarot. And you and Mel also host the Fortune's Wheelhouse podcast. And as if that isn't enough, because you do everything, I'm not even getting into all the things you do. You read Tarot weekly at the In Spirit Crystal Shop in Northampton, Massachusetts, where not too far away at Smith College, you are also a, a professor of creative writing. So I can keep Yes, going. I'm actually not doing the in-person readings anymore. Um, I just, I, it was too much. There was too much really? going on. But <laughs> but yes, I still do readings on Zoom. And yes, I still teach at Smith. <laughs> yeah, you, you do do quite a bit. So my hope is that our discussion is going to give the audience ideas for how to reframe our quotidian lives, our just mundane existence, with all its trials as well as its triumphs, and an endless psychodrama is where we live, encountering ourselves by the way of encountering the gods. And that is what I think you will be able to give us excellent insight into. And so welcome, Susie. Thanks so much, Whitney. It's great to be on. The reason, uh, now let me, let me start that again. You know, I've heard you on a number of podcasts. You've been podcasting for a while, and then you've also been a guest on a lot of the astrology uh, podcasts that I listen to. But really, I almost never hear you talk about you. And I find you so fascinating, the fact that you <laughs> know so many things and you can do so many things. So let's talk about you. <gasps> oh, that's really, really kind of you. <laughs> my, my husband and I are learning Dutch on Duolingo. And there's a phrase that keeps as, coming up as called... couples do. <laughs> <laughs> and the phrase is, ik val omhoog, which means I'm falling up. And that's that's basically my whole life. I'm falling up. <laughs> you know, I, I basically, I think that it's sort of been a, a, a follow your nose kind of life from the beginning and really not knowing, like so many people, what I wanted to do in life. And um, and I have to say that I've been fortunate to get to try a lot of things and I, I feel like I've just kind of cycled through everything I possibly could until I found what I loved. And, uh, and you know, it's not everyone who gets an opportunity to figure that out in this lifetime. So I feel, I feel extremely fortunate to have landed where I have. Well, you do have the, uh, the classic foundation to a, <laughs> a liberal education, and that is a classics degree from Harvard. Yeah, that's a weird thing, too. It, the whole thing was like, it seems, it seems from the outside like it was a plan, but it totally wasn't. I mean, what happened was that in high school, I was, you know, I'd been taking languages. I mean, I'd really only taken French and Chinese up till like my junior, senior year. And then I just wanted to be different. You know, I mean, there were people who were learning Latin and most of the smart kids had been taking Latin since sixth grade. And I just hadn't gotten around to it. And I thought, well, 
I'm not going to start learning Latin now. So I'm going to learn Greek. And so like, bless the people at my high school. They were nice enough to set up like the one teacher who knew Greek to, you know, to set up a private tutorial for me. And I just loved it. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I get this like whole teacher to myself. I get to learn this weird, cool alphabet. I get to read like Homer. It's so cool. So, you know, that was really, it was just like this quirky eccentric thing that I did in high school. And then when I got to college, you know, the obvious thing for someone like me to do would have been to major in English. But I was just like, this department is so big. These people are so smart. You know, they're they're so competitive. You know, what's a weird, cool thing I can do? I can major in classics. I can major in ancient Greek. So that's what I did. Um, I chose the classics department because, you know, there were great professors. It was small. I could study Greek. And I was like one of the few people in like the history of Harvard to only study Greek and not even bother with Latin because, you know, I didn't have to. Yeah. So, I mean, I sort of figured with Latin, it's like you, you get a lot of Latin just by osmosis. And I thought, I'll just take care of that later, which I never did, by the way. But, but, you know, it's sort of like, that it was a great experience and it was um it, it it was really more an expression of wanting to be contrarian than anything else mm-hmm. you know despite the fact that it's like this very you know western civ kind of thing from the outside it was really just like a a weird choice for a like chinese american person to just do so so that's what i did and then afterwards you know i i I was very undereducated afterwards i only went for three years because i started as a sophomore and i needed to like immediately get a job and what happened was that i kind of fell into publishing because one of the few things you can do with a liberal arts degree is you know go into publishing so i worked um for Oxford University Press doing, you know, just scut work for years. Uh, and then I, you know, rose through the ranks and eventually became an editor. And that was like my grad school, basically 10 years of being in publishing and which was great for me, you know, to just, you know, learn by reading everybody else's hard work, <laughs> reading everybody's revised dissertations and not having to write one myself. You know, that was kind of ideal. Uh, you know, I didn't necessarily get a degree out of it, but I did get to live in New York <laughs> and, and barely afford it. Yeah, barely afford it. So, so yeah, no, I mean, really classics was just, you know, um, and getting the degree where I did was just a key to open doors so I could survive, you know, and do weird things. And, uh, and uh, and eventually, uh, I really didn't use my classics degree for decades. You know, I mean, I kind of did when I was an editor. I ran the classics list at Cambridge for a little while. But, you know, but after that, for all the years of having kids and writing about food, didn't crack a book for, you know, not a classics book for years and years. And you, if you had told me that now in the 21st century century and like in 2023 i would be reading more greek than i ever had as a teenager i would have been like you've got to be kidding how's that going to happen <laughs> you know but i, I mean, do i read it, so much is, more greek now than is, is the reason because you use your greek and your mythology to inform your readings or how do you weave all of that greek yeah into- yeah much more so yeah i mean it's it's been weird it's been like I didn't, I just didn't realize that all roads were going to lead back to Greek. I mean, (laughs) it all started because I was really interested in tarot and then tarot led to this podcast and the podcast led to being interested in correspondences and correspondences led to being interested in magic and magic led to the PGM, the, the Greek magical papyri. And then that led to me doing this teaching this course on Homer with my friend. And then that led to like becoming interested in hermeticism, which led me back to the Corpus Hermeticus. So, you know, it's sort of like all these things suddenly sort of got unlocked somehow. Mm. Um, And it's just kind of like following all the things I've been interested in since I was really very young. And then being at Smith, you know, although I teach a writing course there, has given me access to all these amazing, like, lexical resources for Greek, which (laughs) I don't use at Smith at all. So, 
yeah, it's very strange how all these things seem to have woven their way into each other and made up a life. But, you know, everybody's got a weird shape of a life and that's mine, (laughs) I guess. Wow. Well, thank you for that. I have to ask, though, which, where, where was this high school that was so accommodating? Right? Was it oh, Boston? yeah. This was Hackley High School in um, in, in suburban New York, uh, just outside the city in, in Tarrytown. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a really good school. And especially at that time, a very interesting place to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what are you saying is not interesting now? <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm sure it is now. But at the time, like the people who went there that we we were being taught by dissidents, Russian dissidents and like Haitian refugees and, hmm. you know, and uh, and people who had escaped the Holocaust. And, you know, and Malcolm X's kids went there and Reverend Moon's kids went there. And it was just a, a very strange, wow. interesting place. Yeah. Wow. That really does sound like the true melting pot and, and a very stimulating <laughs> place. Was, yeah. 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 Oh, how interesting. Well, thank you for that. Now, my curiosity is almost completely sated, but not quite, because there's, <laughs> you know, I mean, I also one day will find out why you were involved in public policy, which you were, but let's talk <laughs> That's about the Tarot. So you have written a book about Tarot correspondences, which it's, it embodies the maxim, so above, so below, which is actually an abbreviation of the full maxim, but mm-hmm. anyway, so above, so below. And I, I'm getting this sense, I already know the answer to this, but it just seems like you had an, a deeply internalized sense of this already from childhood that you were really kind of mm. tapped into this. There's an enchantment all about me. I mean, what you just described, I'm thinking, well, you were enchanted by life and you were trying to be That's different. Really true. Yeah, yeah. You were trying to be different, but what I think I'm also hearing is you were following the magic. You were following the little pixie dust. So I'm just wondering if, yeah. um, if what you do now is rooted in this sense of, this innate sense of magic and if you think people can learn to have that or if some people who such as yourself kind of are born with it they have an advantage oh no i think it's i think it's part of the human experience i think it's something everybody has i mean i think uh i think we get schooled out of it you know and reasoned out of it and you know common sensed out of it and parented out of it but um but i think that you know um the more that I read lately, I, I've been sort of, you know, as I said, circling back in Hermeticism and reading a lot of Jung. And, you know, there's this theory of the unus mundus, the idea that um, the the physical and the psychic are intertwined, essentially, that psyche and matter are one, mm-hmm. are just different aspects of the same thing. And, you know, and, 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 it, this seems like, you know, an incredibly theoretical and philosophical way of saying what's obvious to any child, right? Oh, that yeah. you look outside, you know, and <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's just, you know, you live in a world where every stone has a life inside of it, every tree, every bird, you know, and, um, and, and I, and I think that we're, we're encouraged to forget that. So, um, so yeah, I think, one of the things that tarot does, I think, um, is help knit that together. Tarot and astrology both because of the as above, so below principle. And that as above, so below principle is a, sort of a condensation of the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, which is this uh, 19th century hermetic text uh, that was originally in Arabic. And the the idea in there it's it's really interesting you know it's very much a um a a, a a cryptic abstract text right from the beginning where it says you know that which is below is like that which is above and that which is above is like that which is below to do the miracle of one only thing so a way of translating that is like to say that the substance of the world is one fabric um the mm-hmm. the the action of the cosmos the 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 radiance of the stars and the human life on earth are one thing you know that the meaning is shared between them and that's something i've always found fascinating about the word meaning in the english language which you know is both subjective and objective you know meaning is both something that you can take out of um out of a text or out of you know out of something that you experience but it's also something you can intend which is not true in all languages you know mm, meaning mm, mm-hmm. has 
has different uh, different words, but um, but I think there's something fundamental about the you know in meaning the the fact that it's both an active and a receptive thing mm. that we do, right? Yeah, so that's interesting. That's, I hadn't considered that. So it's yin and yang. And then finish the phrase again to do the one miraculous thing. Is that what it is? Uh, to do the miracle of the one thing. That's the Newton translation, but I it's the one I like because it's beautiful. What is a miracle mean? of one only thing? It means, I think that you know, it Thinking takes. Of meaning. <laughs> yeah, I think that it means that, you know, to me, I I take it as being, the the idea that to be a human being is to exist in a world where it's alive, not you know, where where the meaning is already latent and imminent in everything around you but it comes alive to you only through your own observation. Mm. So it's, you mm -hmm. know, it's not that every rock is dead until we look at it. It's that every rock is alive, but we don't know it until we try. Right. You so know, something very, like I mean, that. Yeah. It's, it's wherever you place your attention can be yes. here now. I mean, it's very, Ram Das has already told us be here now, but he, he was really just quoting what was already said by the thrice great Hermes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. And, and no doubt others preceding that tradition as well, you know, but, um, but I think that that's, um, I think that's what we do in divination, we go into a space where we allow ourselves to be receptive to, um, to meaning from the outer world, and that by engaging in divination, we court those synchronicities between matter and psyche. And, um, and you can never disprove it and you can never prove it, which is a source of great frustration to many people. But it almost doesn't matter if you're getting the meaning that you seek out of it. Why not? Because what do you get instead? I mean, the the um, meaning is its own reward. Meaning is, you know, mm -hmm. a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning yeah. is what we're seeking and uh you know and i don't really necessarily need my next door neighbor or my uncle or you know or my professors or my students to understand why in order for that to be meaningful to me right it's um where no, the subject is 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 the primary source of reference yeah that make that makes sense to me it reminds me of something that richard tarnas has said and which I hope that my work ultimately reflects to people because I'm very focused on getting people to strengthen and then trust their powers of observation, which you've just alluded to by saying, look, it may not be in your, you may, it may not be in your purview until it is. There's this rock. And now that you've observed the rock, you can have a relationship with the rock. And what Tarnas has said is that it's distressing to consider that the world is random and simply a, you know, a matter of equations while we're supposed to be here enjoying life and our relationships. And I can't remember exactly how yeah. we put it, but I remember just sitting up straight and saying, that's, that's right. That's what I've been saying is, is that life has <laughs> meaning, you have yes. meaning, but you're not automatically going to know what the meaning is until you observe and assign the meaning. So you have to participate. Yes. Yes. It's a participation. Exactly. Exactly. You, you know, I was just reading in, um, what was I reading? Man and His Symbols. And uh, and it, there's an essay by Marie-Louise von Franz at the end of it, kind of wrapping it all up in a pretty bow. And it's, uh, and you know, and the question that science asks always is, you know, what is the cause? You know, what is the cause of this? What is the cause of that? How does A lead to B lead to C? And, you know, if you've read anything that Jung ever said about synchronicity, he emphasizes always that it's a causal, that it doesn't have mm -hmm. to do with right. this linear sort of like one damn thing after another. And, uh, and, and <laughs> what, uh, what, what Marie-Louise von Franz was, uh, was emphasizing in this final essay was that the question is not, what is the cause of this, but what is this for? Right? Yeah. What is this for? What's the point? So, Right. You know, the idea that um, that perhaps there is a purpose to everything that we do, uh, even the most senseless things that seem to happen to us, rather than asking, why did this happen to me? We can ask, what did this what does this happen for? Mm -hmm. To what end? What can we make of it? 
Right. Yeah. And I, I always wonder when people say everything happens for a reason. I, I'm not sure I mm. disagree, but I often find myself mm. thinking, well, or everything happens and it's up to us to assign it a reason. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, yes, exactly. Exactly. Because usually when people say that, it's like, who's giving the reason? God, you know, <laughs> or, you know, or there's, yeah, there's this assumption that there's uh, some external static predestined, you know, force. But, uh, you know, I would, one of the things that I'm coming to recognize is that everything is in motion at once. Everything mm -hmm. affects each other and everything is in motion at once. Every choice that we make is part of this moving, living fabric. And, um, you know, perhaps there is a perspective from which you could say you could see the whole thing at once. But our job as humans, I think, is to create that fabric so that it makes sense, you know, to create sense and to create purpose and to create meaning uh, from our own limited perspective. Well, that's a terrific place then to get into what role the Tarot has. But I think before we start talking about how you use Tarot every day, a lot of people in my audience, because this is a crossover audience between my astrology audience and my policy audience, um, would be to define what an archetype is. Well, it's been defined many times, even by Jung himself, who was the, you know, the the originator of the notion of the archetype. I mean, I guess he would describe it the, an archetype as being a structure in the unconscious, a formal factor in the unconscious that uh, uh, that holds projections, which is a fairly technical. Um, definition. Uh, I guess, you know, the way to think about archetypes is that they're potentialities. They're not, they're not concrete, you know, concrete things that you can put your finger on, and they're not single abstract concepts. You know, if you want to think of, you know, the archetype of the stranger, it's not like we're all going to have the same image in our mind, or mm -hmm. even the same, um, the same uh, examples in our minds. However, we all have a place in our mind that has this concept of the stranger that um, it that's common to everybody. So, so archetypes are shared. They are um, they are psychic potentialities. You might say they are formal, not in the sense like formal versus informal, but in the sense that they um, they provide a structure, a housing for a notion or a concept in that sense. So, you know, when people say, you know, tarot is the, the major arcana of the tarot are archetypes. Well, no, not exactly. Right. You know, they are, um, they are archetypal images. So like the fool is, there is an archetype of the fool, but this is not the archetype. This is an archetypal image. One example of what the archetype might look like. Okay. So, so then, um, Basically, what we're saying is they're like platonic forms. That's a good way of getting to it. All right. So we have these building blocks in a way, but they're constant. And then how we shape them in our lives or how we interact with those forms and therefore shapes arise out of that interaction is mm -hmm. the dynamism. Was that, would you agree that's, with that? I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's also true that the archetypes themselves change over time, slowly, mm -hmm. collectively, you know, at a level that you would have to back up really far to see, you know, I mean, I think that like archetypes of femininity are changing all the time, yeah, for example, you know, but, um, but they reflect the age and they reflect the culture you're in. A wonderful way to think about um, sort of these archetypal figures is to say, you know, who was the god of X or Y, you know, and that's, you know, a goddess of love. That's an archetypal figure, you know, a uh, a god of war, again, archetypal figures. So we all know which they are. Well then, okay. So now that I think we've got a pretty good landscape uh, here to enter, let's talk about this book that you've published. It's I, I do find it interesting that it's your fourth book about Tarot, but it's your first one for beginners, which made me think this was probably hard to do. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it's really backwards the way, you know, really the sort of the wrong way around. But um, yeah, I mean, because for so many years, you know, writing books about Tarot, I just wrote about what I was, whatever wormhole I wanted to go down, you know, and, uh, and 
And I wasn't really sure. It seemed to me the height of hubris to say that you could teach somebody to read tarot, because I know that for me, it was more like, you know, it was more like growing, you know, growing a tarot reader rather than like making a tarot reader. And I, you know, the idea that you could just sort of like just uh, lecture at someone for a while and then uh, give them a certificate just seemed completely contrary to my experience of tarot. But um, but I I thought it might be possible after doing lots of readings and talking to lots of people who were interested and you know wanted just a way in. You know, I, I thought it might be possible to teach someone to teach themselves. Mm. You know, one of the things I found myself doing all the time when I was working in the crystal shop was, you know, people would come in and they'd be looking at the tarot decks and they, you know, and if I wasn't reading for someone, I would come out and I would, and they'd have questions and they'd be like, how do I even start? And I would always say to them, well, you know, the best thing you can do, I would tell them two things. One is the best thing you can do is just start, call, you know, drawing a card every day and see what happens. That was number one. And the other thing I told them to do was to remember that everything in life is in tarot. So if you work backwards from like, you know, you're drinking a cup of coffee, what might that look like in tarot? You know, you're having, you're out going out to lunch with your girlfriends. Doesn't that look like the three of cups? You know, just sort of working backwards from things that you know, rather well, gonna, than I'm, trying I'm gonna, to make it up. I'm stopping you there just, and I, I'm sorry to stop you um, in full steam no, no, there, no. but the, the reason is because I know a lot of my audience is not gonna necessarily even have a picture in their head of what the three of cups looks like. But I, I really want to dive into what you said about everything in life is in the tarot, because that really does bring us back to the importance of understanding archetypes. We are mm -hmm. working in an infinite manner with finite forms of thought that we get to play with. So talk about yes. mind down, but <laughs> the tarot because everything already exists. And what the tarot does is it gives you uh, some sort of kind of communication tool for, yes. for down, it's, you know, it's, it's a way to download those forms or get mm -hmm. the message from those forms. So when you say everything is in the tarot, and particularly if you're talking about drinking up a cup of coffee or going out to lunch with friends, we're talking about the, um, the tarot that was illustrated by Pamela Coleman Smith. And, and truly 90% of this audience is going to have seen some of those images. <laughs> You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Rider Waite Smith, the the tarot illustrated by Pamela Coleman Smith. In theory, you know, I believe that any tarot deck can represent all of life. You know, that it is simply a way of organizing and externalizing your understanding of the universe. Do you think that in that case, all and and I agree with you. I have a few tarot decks that I use that are not um, the uh, Pamela Coleman Smith, sometimes people call her pixie, um, mm -hmm. illustrations. But um, do you think that all the decks need to have all 78 cards as the original tarot decks do? Or are you okay with the new oracle decks? I think that, you know, the, a lot of people come into divination through oracles, oracle decks, and I think that that's great. Um, you know, I think that. There is sort of a trend among a subtrend among Oracle decks that really focuses on affirmation and on, you know, the positive, um, uplifting side of life. And I find that that to me is not a complete picture of mm -hmm. the universe because yeah. it's hard to figure out where the darkness and the shadow is. And I feel like uh every everything that represents all of life has to have that, right? It's not complete without it. I think that Oracle decks that are sim, you know purely affirming have their place and absolutely can help people who need them. Uh, but in terms of the work I'm trying to do, I want a system that is considers itself a complete representation of the world, just the way that the 12 signs of the Zodiac do, right? You know, they are not inherently good or bad. They have right. everything. Because <laughs> right. they're based yeah. on the seasons. Right. So they're right. based on nature. So, okay, so, so everything can be found in, in um, the tarot deck and your first counsel to stu new students is a card of the day. And then I, I interrupted you at that point. Oh, yes. Yeah. So a card of the day and also working backwards from what you know. And, uh, you know, and I and I kept sort of like 
you know, <laughs> haranguing people with these two points that I desperately needed to make. And I thought after a while, you know, I would love to be able to deliver this to more people. So I tried having like a little class out of my house and, you know, I mean, but then I was limited by the people in my county who, you know, were interested in tarot. So, uh, so bit by bit over time, I thought, you know, is there a way to really share this with a wider audience. And though that's how I ended up developing um, the Living Tarot class, which is on Google Classroom. And um, and it was basically a, mm, a structured way of teaching yourself tarot, uh, basically asking yourself the questions that you needed to ask, developing that fluid vocabulary between life and the cards, um, figuring out um, those thorny questions about fate and free will and, you know, and who you think you're talking to when you're asking for advice from the cards. Mm -hmm. I tried to be quite comprehensive about the sorts of things um, a regular tarot need reader needs to know. And, uh, and then, yeah. And then at that point, my editor said, you know, I'd love you to write a basic tarot book. And I'm like, I don't have a basic tarot book. And then we were like, Oh, you have this course. Why don't we make that that a book? So, uh, which seemed like incredibly obvious in retrospect. So, <laughs> you know, it just made so much sense to be able to give people this thing, you know, that that they can, this book that they can work through themselves and, you know, fluidly, flawlessly over time, doing it at whatever pace they need to, you know take themselves from zero to like full-fledged tarot reader. I, you said um, you couldn't really teach and lecture at, but you were thinking of it more like you grow a tarot reader. Yes. And, <laughs> no, and I'm thinking about another guest I had on the show a couple of years ago now, um, Dr. Victoria Sweet, who talks about, she basically, you know, she, she was trained as a Jungian, but she ended up as an internist. She wrote the book, Slow Medicine and also God's Hospital. And to view the human being like a plant, the way Hildegard von Bingen did. Yeah. And yeah. I think, yeah. about, you know, our experience, again, is very elemental. That's why the zodiac, the zodiacal signs make sense yeah. uh, because they're representing all of the elements in various expressions according to the seasons and according to the light as it is being transmitted from the axis that we are tilting in regards to the sun. So, you know, there's... Right. <laughs> well put. <laughs> going to change, you know? And so there are certain forms that are based in things that are eternal. But, right. So then to see the human being and then therefore the human mind and the psyche as something that is elemental and changing within a primary motion of the sun and the earth that is, that is forever, you know, that is constant, but, but within it, the things that are always changing. So to me, it really, I get what you're saying about there being a hubris to, oh, I'll just teach you this and you'll just get it. Right. It, you're you're teaching people that, that's like saying I'll teach you how to be a human right <laughs> so exactly how that. do you do that I yeah. you know I'm a parent I don't know how that works exactly. <laughs> that's what I was thinking when you were talking I was like well you know what I tried that I have a 27 year old now but I'm not so sure I've, there is a sort of you have to step back anymore because the the whole you and I are in a field where there's a lot of us teaching people and talking a lot about astrology and tarot and oracles and all this kind of thing. And we have to remember sometimes to just like, you know, take a beat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, my students are always coming to me and saying, Oh, is it okay? I, you know, I know it's been like a month or two and I haven't, you know, I've only gotten past the first chapter. And I'm like, you know, the longer you take the better because it takes time to learn what, you know, your own language is with tarot and, uh, and to, it takes time to categorize your entire life and the work of it is never done. You know, the, the Jungian Ken James talks about individuation as, you know, being a personal project for him, it's the Ken project for you. It's the Whitney project. You know, we never finish, but there's something else you said. And I think you said it in the beginning of this book, um, that it takes courage to read the tarot every day. Why would you say that? Yeah, yeah. I, I. That's a, a realization I came to just in the last few years, and I really like it. I mean, here's the idea that you know we live in this 
chaotic, crazy world that seems totally out of control. And what do we have to represent the entire crazy world that's out of control? A tarot deck. Everything that could possibly happen is in the tarot deck. And what do we do with the tarot deck in the morning? We shuffle it. So we're basically saying to the entire universe, you know, you give me whatever, you know, it could be anything until I turn that card over. I have no idea. I, I surrender my control over, you know, over what's going to happen in this day and whatever happens, whatever card I draw, I will face it and I will make the best of it. I will make meaning out of it. That is the project. So to me, that takes courage because, you know, so much of what we do as human beings all the time is try to make things more certain and more safe and yeah. more predictable, right? Well, especially and, uh, Western and, linear thinking people like us. Yeah, yeah. And to say that you're completely open to whatever happens, you know, just for these five minutes at the beginning of your day is an incredibly empowering practice. And I think a real antidote to anxiety. It's the opposite of what people think. People think that tarot is about fatalism, you mm -hmm. know, that that basically you're going to surrender your agency and say, tarot will tell me what to do. You know, uh, tarot will um, will will give me an answer to my all my problems. Tarot will decide whether I should move to uh, Wisconsin. Tarot will decide whether I should date this person. No, no, not at all. Uh, one of the things that I've been um, telling people a lot lately is that if there's something you really want, and you are turning to tarot to basically validate what you want, you know, because there's only one right answer. Do they like me or not? If I really need the tarot to say they like me, then I shouldn't be turning to tarot for that because, you know, then I should be doing magic, <laughs> right? You know, if, the, if you're absolutely sure about the thing you want and you got to go get it, don't ask tarot to tell you, you know, you're a good person and yes, you're going to get it. Just go do the magic. It's the opposite side of divination. And it's, you know, and that's the way you want to go. Divination is great for any situation where you are truly open, right? Where you are truly um, open to whatever answer the cards can offer you. And, you know, when you think about it, it's not like there's that necessarily that many situations like that, right? There's a lot of things we have a lot of opinions about. There's not that many where um, where we are willing to let our ego step aside and open ourselves up to a wide variety of possible answers. So what does that actually look like in your daily practice then when you, you get up and yeah. you say, okay, I'm going to be courageous enough to ask the tarot for what do you say I have a specific concern or hey tarot tell me what I'm going to be looking for today yeah. how does this actually turn into a relationship right so it used to be and that's this is part of this whole sort of chain of reasoning it used to be that I would ask for something like that or I would ask I would have a particular problem I would talk to tarot about it and sometimes I still do that but mostly I view the morning draw as an invitation to make meaning so it doesn't necessarily, you know, and sometimes people say, please tell me what I can give me positions for these cards. Give me, you know, and, and I will tell people, okay, you can use a card that's, you can say, tell me something to look for today or some, tell me something that's going to happen today. You can do that. That's fine. But I like to imagine that the card is a, is an intimation of something bigger about the texture and flavor of my life. So when I get the cards, it's something to look for, certainly, but it's also something for me to try. And it's also um, a metaphorical representation of what's going to happen in the day, both the things I know about and the things I don't. So it's kind of, um, you know, it's like reading a poem in the morning and and what I tell people that uh, that tarot is like is that tarot is like living the poem. 
you have this sort of um mm, that makes sense this grain of meaning that you accept in the meaning and then the day sort of turns mm-hmm. <laughs> into mm-hmm. the 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 pearl that forms around the irritation <laughs> over the course of the day <laughs> yeah and and that's so lovely to think of all of that crap as iridescent (laughs) exactly because in the you know in the fullness of time and in the largest perspective it is a jewel your life is a jewel (laughs) you know it's so interesting too where where, as you were describing that I thought you know yesterday I did a poll and I was asking specific questions and it was kind of well if this were to happen what would be the best approach Okay, so mm-hmm. a couple of things come up. And then at the end of the day, I look back and I went, well, that's really interesting because I read this story. I tell myself a story. Oh, this was the story I was thinking I would I would be engaging mm-hmm. with today. And that can be a trap because then you figure, oh, it's going to be this. Well, guess what? It wasn't this. It was totally different. <laughs> However, all of the players in my Greek play showed up. <laughs> they all arrived. They all arrived just as they had <laughs> Marquis said, starring X, Y, and Z. They all showed up. They were all in costume. They all read the wrong script. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Again, as an astrologer, though, I looked at that and I am right in sync. Everything is just as it should be. And that is where you have to stop and go, am I creating or am I being created? Free will, you know, and it's there. It's both. You have to participate. It's both. It's both. I mean, I think, you know, and astrology is so instructive in that way because it really teaches you that there is, you know, a certain shape or quality that you might expect from this transit, but you don't know exactly how it's going to show up. And in fact, you might have some say in that, you know, you might. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to live as though, you know, what I always say is that it's constructive to use your illusion of free will to deal with your illusion of fate. So, you know, yeah, if you have like a hard Mars square <laughs> coming down the pike, you know, you can take charge of that and try to do something, Marshall, to, you know, to um, to fulfill the nature of the archetype while trying not to injure yourself <laughs> right. or others, hopefully, <laughs> or others. <laughs> so, so the, um, I do want to talk about the actual way that the book you've just released um, can be worked into a person's life. But I do love your Deccan's book. I really love that book. And if you if you could talk a little bit about how that came to be, because one of the reasons I love that book so much is it's so disciplined. What's so impressive to me about it is this beautiful meditation. And then an observation of, well, here's how this plays out in my life. And then a whole bunch of questions and thoughts and then a poem (laughs) it's just like oh my gosh Susie but I love it I really do love it because it's also accessible it's not so erudite or heady that it's just kind of like I can't get through this I haven't even had enough coffee to read the first page (laughs) very I feel like it's a companion oh I love that I'm so glad to hear that yeah that book was really special I mean it it all began because I had heard about Deccan walks from, you know, from our astrological friends, primarily Austin, Austin Kopic. And um, I think he'd been talking about it with Gordon White on Rune Soup. And uh, and I think Gordon had done this whole walk with his his various followers. But um, but I, I found the idea very interesting and I wasn't part of that group, but I thought, well, you know, one of the things in tarot I love most of all is these numeric decanic minors, these two through 10 minor cards of the four suits. And I think it would be really interesting to do a Deccan walk around those. So what I did was I, it was the year, I think 2019, that I started, um, at, was it the beginning of, I think it was the beginning of uh, the, the Aries 1 2019. And, uh, and I decided I would kind of blog every 10 days about what I thought the um, the the connections around each minor card associated with the Deccan were. And, uh, and one of the things I was really fascinated by was the associated major arcana that went with each card. So for those of your audience who don't you know, know anything about tarot, like if you take the two of wands, which is corresponds to that first 10 days of the zodiacal year, the 
first 10 days of Aries, uh, those are which is, which traditionally the that, that that's the decan, by the way, or sets of 10. that's the decan, right? Yeah, 36 10, sets, sets of, of 10, 10, 360 degrees of the zodiac. Exactly. So those first 10 days of the zodiacal year are known as Aries 1 or the first decan of Aries. And uh, in the traditional or one of the systems of rulership that is uh, ruled by Mars. Uh, so, so yes, not only is the sign Aries ruled by Mars, but the decan itself is ruled by Mars. So you would, um, you can further kind of think about the way that in tarot, there are correspondences to the planets and correspondences to the signs. And the correspondence for Mars is the tower and the correspondence to the sign would be the emperor. So it's interesting to think about how you can take the tower and the emperor and what they have to do with the two of wands. And that's how that all began. So I, I spent the entire year blogging every 10 days and thinking thinking through some of those connections. And then afterwards, I thought, you know what, this was really interesting and really fun. But what I'd really like is a book. <laughs> so, you know, so that's when so the process of writing the, the book was pretty intense, because I had the blog material, but I wanted to make sure that there was um, a structure to it. You know, I wanted to make sure each time I talked a little bit about the connection with the planets and the uh, signs through the major arcana. I wanted to talk about um, what ancient Deccan commentators thought about it. I wanted to talk about how it was related to other cards uh, and whether, you know, if the two of wands is a card of Mars, what are all the other cards of Mars and how do they, you know, how do they all look and how does that all add up? So, um, so yeah, so it was a really interesting process of just like plumbing part. those depths. And, yeah, and one of my favorites that you um, are the eights of the different suits and the way that in particular, the eight of swords, which if anybody, you know, is familiar with these cards, the eight of swords is um, most readers, some readers actually read swords as fire, I've come to, to learn, but that's um, true. Some do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, but for those who read it as air, so therefore, um, of the element of thought and data and things that you have to process with your mind. So the eight of swords is where you're stuck and it's because you've gotten stuck spinning your wheels and you have this wonderful yeah. way of saying, okay, well, when that happens, think of all the other eights, you can do something. You can, you can, <laughs> yes. you, you can, you can, you can use the other elements to get you unstuck from the element where you are. And I, it's yes. obvious. Yeah but so ingenious. <laughs> and I love that. Well, it's, it makes sense, right? You know, and it, that's one of the things that I love about, you know, um, the way that, that astrology organizes the universe, right? It gives you a way of understanding what is a remedy for what, how, how you achieve balance through opposing elements, um, you know, and, uh, and and why you know why we can get ourselves into um tie ourselves in knots the way we do with the eight of swords for example because that happens to be a place where the the planet jupiter is in detriment in gemini right you know so it's it's just really interesting to think through the implications of the various sets of archetypal forces at work in each card well, you did a beautiful job with the book and and I, I really I think it's it's probably a book that tarot readers obviously will enjoy but I as an astrologer actually use it more for um, finessing readings that I do because mm -hmm. it's pictorial it, you know I can I can show it to my clients or I can describe it but it just it humanizes because I do look at the I, I, as I've said, I always think that the um, astro astrology is is just a way to um, assign roles, like the plot line to the conversation yeah. that the kids are having already about yeah. you on the stage, and you know they're either commenting or they're giving you direction or whatever. But they're, <laughs> right, right. Know, it, it really, as Shakespeare said, you know, all the world's a stage. Yeah, and I thought it was really important to to. Um, to to show some of the ways that it shows up just for ordinary people you know i mean i have the data because i'm a you know a relentless chronicler of data and uh, so i could say look you don't have to be 
that scared of the Ten of Swords because here's how yeah. I've lived through the Ten of what Swords. Here's how you've lived through the Ten of Swords. That right? is the part that makes, so I was going to say as, as um, an astrologer, I use it, but as back to the Tarot, you really, you are a data freak. I mean, I can't get over <laughs> my spreadsheets. You really turn spreadsheets into strategies is what you do. I mean, you, you say, look, I've had the Ten of, I keep detailed notes on how many times and what happens when this card shows up. So the Ten of Swords, because right. nobody likes that card because it looks so scary. It's a man who's been stuck in the back with Ten Swords. But it right. could be that right. you get acupuncture. Exactly. 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 You show, right. like, let's say over the course of 365 days, I got that card three times. That's not a lot. And on those three yeah. days, I had acupuncture or I had a vaccination shot or whatever. And so it becomes back yeah. to your initial um claim that you know the entire world the entire living experience is found in the tarot and sometimes a very dramatic card is just trying to tell you well i didn't have any other way to show you 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 were gonna have a needle (laughs) exactly that's precisely it and that's hilarious i mean i think you know a lot of the time that when we first encounter tarot we think that it's just a mirror a literal mirror of what's going to happen but over as you develop your relationship with the cards, it becomes more and more a window, you know, a window that's has a particular framing, right? But which has infinite variety within it. Anything that you do every day becomes part of you. And, you know, it's just in the same way that you learn to speak by just speaking every day. I think it's true that by working with the cards every day, you start to think in metaphor, you start to appreciate the symbol all around you. And, um, and the thing is that like, one thing that everybody experiences in their symbolic life is dreams, right? You know, everyone has dreams. And, and anyone who dreams, which is everyone, has a sense that maybe there's something, there's something weird and big and strange and not about my mundane life going on in there in my unconscious. What is that, right? Yeah, not everybody remembers their dreams. Yeah, that's a discipline, I think. It can happen. I mean, every everyone can do it. It's just, a, it's a choice and it's not, you know, not always an easy one. Yeah, but, you know, it's really interesting because it's sort of like we are literally spending a third of our lives in this like magical place that is completely beyond our control. And um, and even if you're not a religious person or you don't like, you know, prescriptive spirituality and I don't blame you, you know, at the same time, you have a spiritual life every night. And, you know, one of the things that tarot does in the same way that dreaming does is it helps you establish this relationship with your unconscious, which is not governed by any external authority right? It's, um, it's something that is for you to discover. It's your own adventure. It's just waiting for you to pay attention to it. I believe that when we do things such as communicate with ourselves via the tarot or engage in some regular fashion with that, which we can't fully define, we become better citizens. So to me, this work is is essential to creating a healthy democracy. I think the more we know how we are interacting by way of our personal observations with that which is surrounding us, the better we are at informing ourselves as to what matters. And that is what you go to the voting box for. Yes, yes, yes. That makes a lot of sense to me. I was thinking about that question because it's it's not something obviously that people ask me very often, but I think it does make sense. And, you know, and I was, I think what, um, as I've been reading Jung and thinking a lot about the unus mundus, the idea that, you know, that we are all one fabric. Uh, there's something about working with the universe in your hands every day, which is what the tarot deck is that makes you you know that that is a statement of of participation a statement of being in this world and caring for this world mm-hmm. and that no part of it is alien to you no part of it is a stranger to you um and and you recognize at the same point at the same time that you have shadow parts as well that you you know, that the the person on the opposite 
side of the aisle is not evil, right? That they are not, that when we think the other party is evil, that is a projection of our own shadow. And so I think that what we have to do, you know, in the same way as we work with tarot, is when we we accept any card that comes to us from tarot. We when we do divination, we're open to whatever the message is, and we will make the best of it, whatever it is. And I do think that there's a responsibility in that as well, which is similar to the responsibility of the citizen to recognize that you can't turn away from the broken parts of your society. You can't say that you know, the person you disagree with is evil and you can just cut them out of your life. You know, as human beings, we are healthiest when we are whole. And I think that's true of society as well, which is a lesson that divination has a role to play in. Yeah. And I I guess I would refine that a little bit by saying that sometimes though, my own observation, there are people who can um, be representational of, of a lot of evil. There are people. Mm, Yes. who have for whatever reason been the one either they however things happen on the side where we can't see which i do find the the rise in psychedelic use really interesting because people are coming back and saying hey there's this whole other realm that you know this is all so whatever realm that is that dream world you're talking about maybe that's where we make decisions that really are about our fate maybe we've already chosen our fate but we were the ones to do it whatever the choice was whatever the mechanism of action was that makes certain people embody the evil they do they do. But what you're saying is still true in that it's still our evil as well. It is our evil as well. And, you know, and it's what this teaches us, I think, is that like you can't pretend that it's not part of you and and, you know, and fight it as if it's it's something to be destroyed, because if you try to destroy something that you have projected so much evil onto, it will only get more intense. It is only going to fight harder. We have to, you know, I think there's only one way to heal and it's hard, which is to, you know, to accept and to change and to, you know, and to recognize the humanity of each of us. And I recognize what a big ask that is, (laughs) given, you know, the, the discourse all around us. But, you know, I don't necessarily, this is, this is actually an argument uh, that, that that I have quite often with with my children, um, you know, because I think as a young person, it's very hard to feel like the individual has any traction whatsoever, any power or any traction in this world is at at, at all, you know, um, whether it's in trying to fight climate change or whether it's your one tiny vote, you know, but um, but one of the things that I believe really fundamentally is that the small things that you do matter. They matter even if no one sees them, you know, because you're not just representative of more than yourself. What you do is connected to the actions of everyone else and your despair or your hope sends ripples throughout the world. That's what I believe. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's beautiful as well. So what are you working on now? Because I'm sure it's something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have uh, coming up in the fall, I've got a bunch of things going on. I'm teaching, um, uh, I'm teaching for Atlas Obscura, which I do twice a year. I'm doing um, a course for Jung Platform in November, uh, which will be fun. Uh, and then I've got a couple of like two or three different talks I'm doing. Um, one in my home campus, Smith, uh, one in the humanity center at, uh, university of Oklahoma and one for Northwest tarot symposium. So there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. Usually I write books in the fall, but I'm trying not to be arrogant and assume that I have a book inside me this fall. I'm not a hundred percent sure that I do. I I do have ideas, but uh, you know, I, I don't want to get in the position where I, you know, spread myself too thin, which is very, very easy to do. You know, there's so many other things that, that I want to do. Like, you know, I, 
my line of Zodiac perfumes, I really want to do elemental ones. And I want to do ones that are keyed to the major arcana. You know, I've got like sewing projects. I've got like all these no. things. And, uh, go to Susie's you know. website. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> it's like, and I do this and I do this. And they're all beautiful. I mean, your tarot case bags are stunning. You, I don't know where you get your fabric, but they're beautiful. <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, I, 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 I am like a magpie. I just pick up things everywhere. You know. <laughs> well, it's been my pleasure to have you on this podcast. And I really thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you one day in the future, perhaps at one of your pro classes. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lovely conversation and I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Documental. I'm your host and producer, Whitney McKnight. It's been a co-production with my other publication, News from the Ensouled Universe. You can find both on Substack. Either search my name, Whitney McKnight, and that's McKnight with a K, or you can find documental.substack.com or ensold.substack.com. Thanks for listening.